Maggie Rowe is a writer, an actor, a comedian, and the author of Sin Bravely, My Great Escape from Evangelical Hell. And she has appeared in such movies as Ocean's 13 and Fun with Dick and Jane. She's been on television in Arrested Development, a show for which she was also a writer. And she is also a writer on my new favorite Netflix series, Flaked. If you hadn't checked that out with Will and and you need to. And more importantly than that, the more I talk to her and the more I read about her, Maggie Rowe is increasingly one of my favorite people. I think uh, a lot of people will be new fans of Maggie Rowe after listening to today's Thinking God podcast. And you're, you're mostly writing now, right? Is that? Yeah. Yeah, mostly writing, yeah. Are you still doing any comedy at all? Any kind of... Uh... Oh, yeah. Uh, so I produced this show, Sit and Spin. Uh, right. Uh, so I've been doing that for 15 years. Uh, so that's primarily Comedy Central sponsors edit. So it's personal essays with kind of a comedic bent to them. Right, right. Yeah. And I've seen some of your stuff on uh, YouTube as well. Was, and that was uh, pretty fun. That was a lot of fun. Oh, thanks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can, uh, all right. Um, I guess we'll just jump right in. Maggie, do you ever still dream about hell at night? Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Um, I do not dream about it, but I will say that, um, I still get triggered by things sometimes. It's, even though my adult self completely does not believe in a literal hell, there's still that child part that, you know, will occasionally, um, you know, things will trigger me, things in movies, you know, funerals, you know, it's still there. That little seed is still there. So, but much, much less. Well, yeah, I was telling you, I grew up in sort of the deep south, southern Baptist land as well. And, um, you know, it, actually, the era I was in seemed almost, you know, your, your era seemed almost enlightened compared to mine. Oh, <laughs> At yeah. least you had the Reverend Tim Tom kind of guy trying to be cool and singing the Up With People. That's a tremendous <laughs> character. Have you seen this guy on the middle? Oh, yes! That yes. is just exactly as good as you could get on, on that's right, that that's characters. Right. But we didn't have that. All we had was Screaming Evangelist, who Ooh. basically had that gravel voice that landed right between Chainsmokers and Lucille Ball. You know, it was that, <laughs> that level of... And they didn't realize many times they had a microphone, but they were screaming anyway, and they'd spend 45 <laughs> minutes telling everybody about hell and then tell everybody if we beg Jesus, he might forgive us if we hurry down the aisle. And oh. now, now, where was your church at? Um, it was a, a northern suburb of Chicago. Okay. But it was actually a Southern Baptist church wow. in Chicago. So it was part of that conference. Um, <laughs> You're a missionary church. <laughs> we were a missionary church. We were a missionary church. Yeah. Yeah, right in the middle. They had to, they had to bring that element all the way to Chicago. <laughs> Well, you know, you could predict when they played the, the multiple uh, uh, stanzas of Just As I Am, if you waited long enough, you knew who was going to come down the aisle again. <laughs> we, we would sit there as kids. We knew who was coming on which verse when the parade would begin. They were going to get saved every week. Oh, that's true. Um, I, I remember seeing Billy Graham on TV and, like, just praying that prayer over and over in my head, you know, just trying to make sure I got it right and, you know, trying to... Bring up enough love for this God that might send me to hell. You know, it was such a contradiction. Like <laughs> the prayer always, almost without missing a beat, it was your buses will wait for you. <laughs> 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 no 
That was always the end of the prayer. Billy Graham would end it and then tell them their buses would wait for them in case anybody had settled their eternity but was worried about getting left by, by, the, bus. <laughs> by the buses. So you're going to heaven, but you're going to have to get a ride home. That's the, uh, the downside to the... Uh, but, you know, we were talking about right before we went on, no matter how smart and snarky we are, it, it leaves a mark when you're raised in that sort of environment. It does. It's, um, it's a fear that gets implanted. And even if it's not explicitly a fear of hell, it's a, it's a, you know, my brain has been programmed to be in a state of um, fright. Uh, and that's taken me a long time to, you know, work with, <laughs> work with my own mind to kind of retrain, you know, it's like the neuroplasticity of your brain is retraining your brain to not be in, in fear, you know. Uh, which meditation helps with tremendously, um, or has for me at least. But uh, but yeah, once it gets in there, what's the what's the verse in Proverbs about? If you etch these verses in the mind of a child, they will uh, they will stick forever. <laughs> you know, it's something like that. Sure. And it's true. It's true. It was etched, and it's it takes a long time to uh, to clear that. Well, unfortunately, it's it's not true to the spirit of Scripture, which says God is no longer going to write His laws on tablets of stone, but put them on hearts of flesh and teach us how to live, rather than looking for a rule or a uh, right. You know, right? It's like all the you know all the times that Jesus says, "You have heard them say blah blah blah," <laughs> but I say, you know, it's the but it's I feel like we got you know evangelicalism can get caught in that first step you know of the legalism and the and the uh, judgmental and vengeful god you know well i don't know if your experience was like this but for me and, and people of my generation um it was like we were basically taught to live a prophylactic life not to really experience yeah. anything because we might be doing something wrong and make god mad at us but that also led to us never really experiencing the love of god because we were protecting ourselves against we were hedging all our bets Exactly. Exactly. That's what, and that was the, that's the whole sin bravely thing is that it's more important to feel the love of God than it is to follow these rules to the letter. Well, you know, even, even it's a good era to be in because a lot of people who take faith seriously, people from, you know, Brian McLaren and Rob Bell to even guys like N.T. Wright, who um, his book, his newest book on it's not one of his more accessible books. He, you know, he tends to write a theological book and a couple of accessibles and a theological. But his book on the crucifixion basically talks about the the obsession with hell is less than two hundred years old and has nothing to do with the crucifixion or Jesus or anything else. Really, tell me its name again. Well, I can look. And N.T. Wright is probably. And this is this is a bold statement, and people might disagree with me. He is not only this generation C.S. Lewis; he's smarter than C.S. Lewis and more prolific than C.S. Lewis. He's oh. the, he's the fourth ranking bishop in the Anglican Church. Uh, he's a Scottish bishop. He has oh. written dozens of books. I mean, his books, Simply Jesus, uh, Simply Hope. Some of these books really, really strong. Uh, now he is still remains Orthodox. Obviously, he's an Anglican bishop, you know, but he uh, also is very. Uh, you know, he, he does, it's funny if you look at his stuff alongside like Brian McLaren, you familiar with Brian McLaren, A Generous yes. Orthodoxy, and you know, Rob Bell's stuff is more, of course. You know, of course, it's a generation, you know, even there. But it, it is, uh, you're, we're seeing a lot more people talking about grace. And you know, Luther, uh, when you were, your, your Sin Boldly thing, it was Luther's stuff about that even went beyond it because Luther's sort of intellectual writing partner was Philip Melanchthon, and he told him once to go out and sin so he'd have something to repent of. Huh? Because Melanchthon was so tight wound and holy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, and that kind of leads to your book. I want to talk about that a little bit. Your book is Sin Boldly, 
and um, it it does come from a little bit, like you said, from the, the school of thought via Luther. I did Google Grace Point. Is is that the one that when I Google it? It's not the real okay, name. That's, not okay, the, not the, there is a Grace Point Christian Mental Place in Florida. You know that, right? Oh no, I just, <laughs> there is. It's in Tampa. I turned it. I thought, well, holy cow! Oh so, really? No, yeah. no. <laughs> All right. Well, I just wondered. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, has has anybody that knew you from there responded to that book? I mean, it was a long time ago. It was a long time ago, and I of course I was so hoping to find Quinn, who was my good friend there, um, and I've never been able to uh, locate her or get in touch with her. But no, I it was you know it was twenty five years ago, so. So Bethany, um, Bethany doesn't send you a Christmas card. Is it? <laughs> no, <laughs> she's probably still wondering about my weight problem, though. <laughs> well, we're talking about your book, so let's for people who who don't know about your book, tell people a little bit about the book and where the idea for it came and why you decided to. Because writing a book, people don't appreciate how much work that is. It was a lot of work. Well, I so I was in this uh, psychiatric facility for uh, an evangelical psychiatric facility for three months uh, when I was nineteen years old, and the book. Uh, centers on the time that I spent there and then flashes back to my youth and what led up to it. But I essentially went there. It was a very simple reason is I was terrified of going to hell. And it wasn't even that I thought that I was going to hell. It was that I couldn't prove to myself that I wasn't, you know, because you're not mailed a certificate where you can look at it and go, all right, eternal state is set. Um, But I knew even when I was in the facility that I wanted to write about it. So I took copious notes while I was there. It was just such a strange, odd, I mean, torturous and um, and ultimately helpful. Uh, But I knew I wanted to write about it. So I, I have these three, you know, like big binders full of notes that when I was writing it, I was able to go back to, um, and like get all of these details, which I never would have uh, remembered otherwise. Uh, but I wanted to write it. I wanted to, I mean, for myself, but also um, for other people who have had this kind of past and um, hopefully be helpful in some way. And I have had um, probably once a week somebody contacts me uh, through my website. Um, just sharing a similar experience, and uh, so it makes me feel good. It makes me feel well, Remind people your website. What is your website? Oh, MaggieRoeAuthor.com. Okay. Well, it, it, several things there. Um, one, have you always been a journal a person who journaled? Have you always taken lots of notes, or is that just for that period of time? Or? No, totally. So I'm a massive journaler. Okay. Um, I started in high school and, and then through college, and yeah, still do. Still do. It's part of my like daily ritual. Well, you tried to work through this sort of hell thing with your church and people, and you kept getting either very um, vague answers or answers that just really fed your fear, right? Yes. So my, I had one pastor who was incredibly well-meaning and absolutely you know, tried to assure me that I was not going to hell, but there was this verse in Revelations, if you are neither hot nor cold, but lukewarm. God will spit you out of his mouth on Judgment Day. And, you know, I, I asked him what that meant. I'm like, I'm afraid that I'm lukewarm. I don't know that I'm on fire for God. I just want to watch the Brady Bunch and eat Susie Q's. You know, like, that doesn't sound like a girl that's on fire for God. Um, so 
as much as my parents and my pastor tried to reassure me, um, it didn't work. I figured, you know, they could be wrong. You know, like my parents had been, they thought that the Joker's Wild came on after Tic-Tac-Toe and it it didn't, you know, like (laughs) I had seen them be mistaken before. Um, And then I had one pastor, a youth pastor, who said that if I was worried about it, that was an indication that I probably was not in fact saved because God would send the comforter, the Holy Spirit, to assure me of my salvation if I was indeed saved. And that just sent me into a, you know, because then anytime I had any fear, that was a confirmation of the fact that I was damned. You know, it was a, it was a terrible kind of double bind that he put me in. Well, and they, for people, and obviously you were a reader, and that's why I've always been a writer and always been a reader, and for people like us, I, that, that's been the the common sort of things they throw back in your face. These, these circular, nonsensical. You, in your mind, you're thinking, "Well, I just read where Jesus said, you know, can this cup pass? Did, my God, you've forsaken me.' I mean, yeah. So I don't understand. You just told me if I have any doubts, but then Jesus did, and then you got, and then they they couldn't come up with any answer when you tried to bring that into the. Right, right. That's true. That's like the ultimate moment of doubt. Why have you forsaken me? Even you know, yeah. Well, it, it is funny, too, that, that people were, like I said earlier, uh, it sounds like your experience was that in youth groups and stuff, the people who um, did the best were the ones who lied the best, generally. They teach you to lie very well. Yeah, yeah. I was like, I used to <laughs> joke that the, uh, any answer, any question in Sunday school could be answered with, Jesus died for my sins. <laughs> <laughs> or just Jesus. Just throw Jesus out. <laughs> <laughs> but I did say, I mean, I know in my in my experience, it was very much, uh, you were far more rewarded for lying and pretending to just kind of go along to get along than you were if you did have doubts or questions or anything else, because you were suddenly a troublemaker and on the outside. And that was particularly true if you think about, you know, early 60s and later when it was, you know, the, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it, which, you know, was how they answered any question you had about the Bible. <laughs> right, right, right. Right, and not looking at it as a, you know, as a work of literature that has to be read with the, you know, it's words, it's stories, you know, and it has to be, you have to have some literary criticism, you know, or not criticism, but um, um, you have to learn, it's still a book that you're reading, you know. Well, context is, I mean, like you're saying, literary context is important no matter what you're reading. If you, right. If you don't, if you look at the story of Jonah and don't realize here was a rich guy who could afford to rent his own boat and hire his own crew, and other, and other rich guys are listening to the story, kind of stuck in their tins, thinking, this is interesting. You know I mean? Yeah, than, yeah. But uh, how did your, I know you, you protected their privacy, and if you don't want to talk about it, that's fine, but how did your parents respond to you doing the book and everything? Because they lived through this with you. Yes, they did. And you know what? They were, they are and were wonderful. I was incredibly worried that I, um, I mean, I was incredibly worried that this would be hurtful to them, that they would feel like their faith was being um, challenged or critiqued. Um, And at first I had my sister read the book. uh, And she was like, I think they're going to be okay, Maggie. And they read it, and their main response was, I'm just so sorry that you had to go through it. And, you know, they said it broke their hearts to read it and just to kind of know how you know, how very hard it was for me, but they were completely accepting of me having written it and 
um, it, it just, I mean, I burst into tears. My mom was just like, kid, we are so proud of you. <laughs> and I just, yeah. That's wonderful. Um, yeah, they're really wonderful. What about people who read this that may have actually more, you know, more profound mental illness? Because that seems to be something the church has also sort of dodged and not wanted to deal with at all. This that sort of stuff triggers incredible stuff if you've already or if you're already dealing with a chemical imbalance. That's absolutely true. And you know, I've gotten I, I got a letter from somebody. Um, I guess I sh- I mean I, sh- I don't know if I shouldn't say the details. Uh, uh, but he he clearly um, was suffering from psychosis. Um, uh, he, he thought the Antichrist was inside him. So it was very different. I mean, I, I had OCD. It was like mine was OCD combined mm-hmm. with um, strict evangelicalism. And his was clearly some form of schizophrenia combined with the evangel. You know, it's, it's like evangelicalism can be very fertile breeding ground for these um, mental illnesses that already exist. And that was what was good about this facility is uh, it was saying you know it was acknowledging (laughs) of course that there that there was a mental illness that that couldn't just be cured by um more scripture reading you know that sometimes people need medication so um it, it was a very enlightened place in that sense i would say well and i think you were fair i mean the fact that there was one obviously well-trained psychiatrist there who was able to walk you through stuff in, in, in the face of having to deal with administrators and well-meaning, you know, churchy kind of counselors. You know, you did have somebody there who was qualified and was able to help. Oh, yeah. So he, he was wonderful. He, you know, I told him that I was, you know, worried about blaspheming the Holy Spirit, you know, because that was the the one sin that could not be forgiven. And he just, he put his finger up towards the ceiling and said, you know, he was like, screw you, Holy Spirit. You're my least favorite person in the Trinity. You know, like, and it just, oh, I mean, I just laughed so hard. And like, it was like him being willing to kind of implicate himself in the sin that just made me go, oh, oh, like, it was just so, it was so freeing and so kind and, such a kind of a creative way to um, to help me, you know, and um, brave in a way, I guess. Well, I hope I hope somehow word gets to him and encouraged him that he was, you know, helpful that way. That's yeah. Right. You know. yeah. One of my very favorite parts of the book, and of course you can't go wrong quoting Patty Smith, but <laughs> when you quoted the ugly can be beautiful but pretty never, never, that really seems to be the heart of the message of this book, whether you're talking about Bethany or God or yourself or your approach to life. I just love it. Oh, thanks. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I always loved that line. It's just pretty implies a, um, I don't know, a constraint. It's also like a... Uh, you know this this kind of femininity that makes you small and um, confined in some ways and ugly. It's like Patty Smith is so ugly in a lot of ways. You know her her the, her voice, her manner, and but is like one of the most beautiful women ever in in my mind. Yeah, yeah I, I thought that was really the 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 perfect approach in there because. Uh, yeah, people need, and you're pretty is kind of like the word nice. That word can be yes, kind of, exactly. there's, there's something creepy about that word. I don't know. Yes, that's right. That's right. And it holds meanings that people don't intend, I think. 
Um, let's talk a little bit about your, well, before I do that, how about, how have your friends in the business who didn't, unless you've talked about this a lot, I know you've done some, some stand-up on it, but how have your friends in the business, uh, that didn't know about your OCD about hell responded to the book? Um, I would say, I mean, a lot of my friends know about it, uh, mainly because I did this Hollywood Hell House production. Okay. Um, do you know about that? I have not seen the Hollywood Hell House. I've checked that out. So hell houses, you know what hell houses are. Mm-hmm. So what I did was I got a hell house kit from the pastor who created it and put on a hell house in Hollywood, um, a full walkthrough kind of haunted house um, using the exact script of hell houses with, you know, Belmar was Satan and Andy Richter was Jesus. Um, and right away, you have a hell house when Andy Richter's Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> if I get to heaven and Andy Richter's Jesus, I'm going to be like, seriously, is this, you got to be kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, and many of my friends were in that. You know, it, it was interesting. It just it took, put it in a different context and certainly therapeutic for me. Like, talk about exposure to your fear. Um, but my, some, a lot of my friends know about this from that production but the ones that weren't um I just I really felt a great deal of sympathy and just people going oh I can't believe you went through that you know that's how hard that must have been because it is you know talk about the era that we're living in it is a, a fear of how most people just either reject the whole thing um, or they're in it, so they're not worried about it. So, you know, in some sense, I was a little peculiar in that. I think if my parents had been less wonderful, I would have, you know, if my parents had been hypocrites or, you know, unkind in any way, I think I could have, re- you know, I, I could have moved away from it and come back to it in an easier way. But it was like, well, these people are great. <laughs> like, <laughs> They must be right about everything, you know. Um, it is funny, though, when you run into people. I used to live out in Mill Valley. and oh, uh, yeah. I had a friend one time when I was talking about my growing up and the things, and he looked at me and he said, he said, what you're saying to me is as foreign as if you told me that you used to see Thor and Loki on a weekly basis. <laughs> <laughs> and the, he just said it was as weird to him as North mythology because he, he had no perspective and no background on it whatsoever yeah. at all. And he thought I was making a lot of this stuff up. But, you know, a lot of the stuff, it does, when you think about things like we did at church, I think in one of your uh, clips on YouTube, there's a thing of you singing the little Noah song or something in there. Oh, uh, yeah. It, <laughs> it looks like parody and it looks like you're making this up, that you did this and made it look old and people don't they don't realize we saw that stuff all the time. That was just yeah, part yeah. of the weekly. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the song was, Now the Lord was unhappy with the people on earth. They were not what they ought to be and not what they're worth. They were bad and ugly and mean as could be. So the Lord wiped them out, as you will see. <laughs> yeah. And by the way, God loves you. And by the way, God loves you. Come back tonight. Yeah. Let's talk about your faith today. I mean, how is how have you come through this journey, and and and, and where is your faith at today? So my journey has been um, so after the period in the hospital, I really did kind of go on a sin bravely campaign um, in some ways, and I and I just began altering how I was looking at God, um, and it was helpful for me. Part of my journey was to picture God as a woman. Um, 
just for me, that was, I was better able to picture compassion and kindness from a, a feminine kind of entity. Um, so that was probably the first phase. And then I went through a phase where I really just eschewed all of it. Um, I lived in a Hindu ashram for a while. Um, I was a member of a Zen center uh, for probably eight years. Um, I'm a very regular meditation practitioner. Um, and it's really only been over the last couple of years that uh, through reading people like uh, like Rob Bell, like Peter Rollins, um, mm-hmm. started reading some Meister Eckhart stuff, um, some Thomas Merton stuff, um, uh, people that kind of like helped me kind of reframe um, and look at passages and ideas that I had grown up with in a different way. Um, so I wouldn't call myself um, a Christian now, but I will say that I, um, I now have much more of a connection to the Christian faith in terms of, to me, it, it seems like all religions are kind of pointers to the truth and they're, um, sometimes we confuse the pointers with the truth itself. Um, but, um, I found more of a connection to the Bible in the last two or three years than, um, uh, than I have in a long time. And it, it, it makes me happy. And I just get this kind of jolt of like, Oh, it that could have meant this, you know, it's like, Oh, um, that, um, yeah. And I think it, it, that kind of journey has, if I had written this book 10 years ago, I think it would have been a lot, a lot angrier of a book. Um, and I think like kind of coming back to reconnect with some of the ideas that I was taught in a new way, um, made the book kinder overall. Well, that's, so you do still read the Bible now. You've come back to that point. Yeah, I mean, through I, I'm not not like sitting down and reading the Bible, but like reading um, different Christian authors. I would say, yeah. Okay. How, well, how is your what is your view of Jesus today? Who is Jesus to you today, Maggie? I would say that Jesus was. A, yeah, that is a big question. Um, I ask everybody that, and it is a big question. There's no, I'm, not gonna, I'm not following up, I'm just curious. <laughs> no, no. Um, I would say that he brought ideas of personal enlightenment to the world. And I think of, like, you know, Matthew Fox talks about Christ consciousness um, sometimes. And I think of Christ consciousness as being a part of myself, my higher self. Um, so when I pray, I'm praying to um, the divinity or the wise Christ consciousness in myself as opposed to something outside. Well, and you know, you mentioned that the recovery community has really brought in the idea of God consciousness, and, and it's really solid in the way it came out of the big book of AA and places where the yes. idea of being God conscious and everything you do. It's, it's, it's a thing that it's funny. They borrowed it from the church of old, but the church sort of abandoned it and left it hanging there about being conscious of God <laughs> rather than conscious of your sin or your goodness or your uh, 
you know, some other something you're supposed to do. It's uh, being God conscious, and you're and, and that has always the, the mark of the church. If you look, the first thousand years, really, until maybe eleven hundred or so, it would have been completely foreign to have approached faith from hell. Oh, and the, and it was always the. And still, to some degree today, if you look around the world at the people providing medicine and orphanages and stuff, it's the people who are still reflecting that idea of of faith that uh, these are these are these are Jesus things to do, you know? Right, right. That the and that's and the twelve steps really have been could the church. I mean, you you and I are half a generation at least apart, but. Uh, we both could stand a 12-step recovery from the kind of weird stuff from church we got working the steps. Absolutely. I mean, the 12-step program, AA just seems to be the most enlightened organization. The fact that you can have people come together and have different um, interpretations of their own higher power is just, and that, it, and that it comes down to service, that it comes with community, that it comes to surrender of your own will. Yeah. Bill W. wrote in the, the big book of AA, he says, without gratitude and service, no one can stay sober. And I no. think without gratitude and service, you can't really have a spiritual life of any kind. Yeah, I think that's, those are the two, those are the two components. Yeah, I've, like, I should become, you know, <laughs> like if, uh, I should start drinking a lot more and then stop so I can. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to mention that because you you were you're one of the writers for Flaked, which is a Netflix series, yeah. which I just finished the first season. Really impressed, and I really like the um, the reflection of the twelve step community in that. It seems, but the, the the series itself seems it's interesting. Seems to reflect three to me the three key and deep biblical themes of exile, forgiveness, and liberation. Ah. And those are the sort of the keys to all of Scripture. If you think about all of Scripture, is based on uh, it's exile, forgiveness, and liberation. Those are the three them- thematic parts of Scripture. But in this, and I don't want to give too much away of the show because really, it does have without being an O. Henry, you know, <laughs> sort yes, of yes. complete. I'm speaking of that, do you ever watch SCTV? Oh my gosh! Did you ever see John Candy's uh, O. Henry's The Secret Booth? No. Okay, he wrote this story. He kept writing. He was O. Henry, and he was going to his publisher. You got to come up with some more ideas. So he writes this thing, the secret booth, and the guys said, "I don't understand it." Because at the end of this, we've got a man who goes to this restaurant, and has a private booth, and he eats there every day. And then one day, he's eating, and a lion comes in and eats. <laughs> and so he goes, "Well, you see, it's a turn. It's a surprise ending. You wouldn't expect it." <laughs> and so Candy, you know, Candy would explain things. I'll have to look that up. My dad and I used to watch SCTV together all the time. Nothing has ever been funnier on television. Than Nothing has ever been funnier. Of course, they give them 90 minutes and nobody was watching. You could do whatever you wanted to do. But they also have the best people ever. But Flaked, Flaked is layered. I mean, it's not your typical... Um, I think some a friend of mine started watching. He thought he was going to be funny. I said, nee, "There's some funny things in it, but it's very layered, and it's a very good character study." And I think um, the um, Will Arnett does a really good job of keeping that character right in the sweet spot. Yeah, I do too. I do too. Yeah, and and I think it really shows the AA community. Um, the cop who plays the cop is tremendous. He is a great. He's great. He, he is a tremendous. And he, you're right. It it does. Um, so, and AA, like I said, it is as an organization. AA and NA are organizations made up of people who are just as flawed as all the rest of us in every way. But it is also that focuses on community, God consciousness, service, gratitude, and the kind of things. And those are all reflected in the show as well, including the harder edge of it. If you remember in one of the later episodes, I'm not telling anybody where 
you know, the Will Arnett character, Skip says something to him that's just really to the bone mean. Yes. But that's part of it, too, you know. But that honesty, you can grow past it. And you also see his maturity is how he responded to that because he kind of expected that kind of lashing out, which in the church, if you do that, you're going to get kicked out. Or <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and it's interesting in the in the second season, this isn't giving anything away, Um it, we, Which we debuts have, June, what you tell me? Yeah, June 15th, I okay. believe. Um, uh, what, what was it? Oh, but in the second season, we deal with the idea of what is the main character really addicted to? Is he really an alcoholic or is he, is it more of, uh, is he addicted to pride and to his image? Um, so kind of part of the journey of the, um, Second season is his recovery from um, his ego. <laughs> and the ego, too, started, I mean, I, again, I, I don't want to give much away, but the ego started as a good instinct to try to help somebody. I mean, it shows you how that path is slippery, you know? That's right. That's right. You make a decision, you think you're doing the right thing to help somebody else out, and then you kind of grow into that and something else blooms out of it. Yeah, yeah, well said, well said, yeah. Um, yeah. Are, are you part of any sort of faith-based community of any kind now, or...? Um, I go to several different, um, um, places. Uh, I go to a Unitarian church sometimes. I go to... You know what happens there when they get mad at you? What? They come over and burn a question mark on your lawn. (laughs) That's the oldest Unitarian joke, but I mean, anyway. (laughs) So don't ever cross them. That's, uh... Um, that's very funny. So I I go there, I go to a Vedanta center sometimes, and then I'm also, I meditate at a, um, uh, a Zen center. Okay, you've mentioned that several times, so you must be doing yoga all the time. I do a lot of yoga, and I I, I meditate a half an hour in the morning and a half an hour at night. Um, Well, that's a Christian concept that's been lost. The concept of meditation is incredible. That even Jesus said, through prayer and meditation, you get this kind of you know. Right. But never. In fact, I was. I remember being told. When I first started um, meditating, I had an aunt, a very Christ- evangelical aunt, that said, um, uh, nothing good can come um, from sitting and letting the mind do nothing. Um, that I was like, what? Um, but yeah, oh, you know what? Who else I've been reading is Richard Rohr. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, who talks a lot about how meditation in the early Christian churches was standard practice and that prayer wasn't soliciting God to give you more things. Uh, It was um, to connect with this spirit. Um, Yeah, like reading him has been helping, you know, because I really did have this idea that meditation was antithetical to faith, you know. Um, And it's really not like it's encouraging to, to go, yeah, the early Christians, they were doing this. They were doing this, and you know, it's only been in I don't know, however many recent years that prayer has become, you know, it's kind of like the secret, you know, the you know the book, the secret, you know, it's like how many things can you get, you know, how can you talk the universe into you know bending to your will, and it seems like you know that's a lot of what prayer has become. The best joke I've heard about the secret is that it's only worked for one person, Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> he's the only person who made the secret work. Uh, Richard Dorr's book, Falling, Falling Upwards, really kind of, that's that's one that if you hadn't read, it's really a strong book. But what you're talking about is there was a time, and I mentioned to you when we were talking about, uh, N.T. Wright mentions it in his new book, 
the day the revolution began, um, that the Christian body understood there are mystics, there are people doing you know, work with the poor, there are people doing, you know, work with education, there are people doing different things. It's the old concept of many parts, one body that you know so well. Probably sang songs about that in youth group too. Yeah, yeah. But um, the idea that, that mysticism was not seen as some sort of bizarre, but it was, you know, a really legitimate people who came out with really amazing insights about God that helped everybody because that was their calling. And some of them are hilarious. Uh, uh, Teresa Avila had a, one of her, in one of her books, it starts out talking about, and she's telling God that he'd have more friends if he treated the ones he had better. <laughs> <laughs> That's the beginning of this mystics book, this great book, you know. And uh, so it, it is a lost sort of thing that, that a lot of the things that, uh, and, and really it backs up to whatever's true is true. I mean, if something is truth, it's truth no matter what labels you try to throw in front of it or what modifiers you try to put on it. If it's true, it's true. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's, and I, I feel like it's the you know it's the personal experience with it as opposed to yeah this dogma that you have to see if you match up with it well enough you know. And I think though you can be careful though, being the Christian church and that tradition that the personal experience though doesn't replace the idea of we're kind of all in this together. Right. Because right. that Lone Ranger Christian thing is what got us in trouble to begin with. <laughs> Huh, yeah, you know, I got a personal relationship with Jesus, and He told me this. Well, really, that because I used to do some counseling, I've counseled people who would come and literally uh, tell me completely opposing things about the same issue that God told them. <laughs> you know, it's kind of uh, yeah, right. Ah, well, that's right. that's nice opinion you got there. Right, right, but yeah, in community, that the yeah that Jesus exists in relationships. Yeah. Uh, well, what's next? What are you working on now? Uh, so now, um, <laughs> hopefully there will be no writer's strike. No writer's strike. Cross our fingers, no writer's strike. Uh, uh, I'm working on the fifth season of Arrested Development, um, which will be coming back to Netflix. Uh, they did a fourth season right. with Netflix about four years ago. Um, and it's taken this long to <laughs> wrangle all the actors to be free at the same time. <laughs> That's a great to- cast. I can see one. Yeah, it is a great Without giving anything away, what can you look forward to in that season if we can get it? Oh, let's see. Um, There, a murder mystery. Um, Mitch Hurwitz has talked about this, so I feel like I'm safe to say it. Uh, um, You know, in the fourth season, we end with one of the characters um, you see is dead. Uh, So the fifth season will be a little bit of a mystery to find out. Um, It's a little bit of a whodunit. Uh, and kind of in the spirit of, um, uh, like the Robert Durst, uh, documentary that, uh, was on HBO. It's, mm-hmm. you know, it bears some resemblance, uh, to that. It's a little bit of some parody involved. Um, and yeah, we'll catch up with all the characters and, um, uh, yeah, we, it was amazing that we got everybody back, back together. Uh, but I think it's, it'll be a really good season. That is amazing. Good, almost that, that cast. When you start looking around, they're everywhere. I mean, they're already. Yes. God, yeah. And, uh, what you got? Another book in you? You got another book you're thinking about? I do have another book in me. I do have another book in me. I'm working on it now. Um, it's called Easy Street, um, and it deals with uh, the idea of what is a good life, what makes an easy life, and it centers around it's a year in the life of, of me. And I take care of a um, a fifty five year old autistic woman. Oh, this is from your Everybody Hates Poetry. 
Oh, yeah. I saw that online. I love that. I was going to ask you if you were going to deal with Everybody Hates Poetry thing. That was great. Oh, oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, so it's about this woman. Um, uh, I call her Franny. Um, and <laughs> the kind of comedic aspect is that as I'm trying to help this woman, well, that's what's, it's exploring my own motivations of, you know, am I doing this to feel good about myself? Am I doing this as a replacement for not having children? Um, is it genuine altruism? Like, what is my, but the, the kind of comedic element is um, Franny is in love with my husband, who she calls Handsome Jim. And she always says to me, um, you know, you're lucky because you live on Easy Street, but anything could happen on Easy Street, Maggie. You never know. (laughs) 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 Um, But we're a funny little pair, um, the two of us going through life. Um, It also deals with um, uh, how my OCD continues to manifest uh, and some of the fear that still hangs on. Um, I... going into detail, but I have a, I sometimes repeat words in my head, which is an unfortunate um, affliction. Diana um, repeats words out loud. <laughs> so I, I seem much saner, um, and you would think she was less sane if you met her, but really we're very similar. So it's kind of a, a, it's kind of a journey of two women over the course of a year. We're linked together. Now, how far along are you on that? I've written three chapters. Oh, that's good. That's good. Yeah. Now, I don't know if you want to share that, but your husband's in the business, too. You mentioned him. Yes, yes, yes. So he he has worked on Arrested Development from the beginning. He's, Tell him uh, his name. People his name. Oh, Jim Vallely. Okay. Jim Vallely. Uh, he started working on The Golden Girls. Uh, that was his first job. Um, and, yeah, he's been working in television ever since. And uh, Golden Girls and Arrested Development are definitely his... Um, his favorite experiences. He always says about the Golden Girls, I was like this, that if those four women couldn't get a laugh on a joke that you had written for them, then you had written a bad joke. <laughs> uh, that's, that's a pretty good. That's a pretty good resume sheet he's got going there. Those, yes, yeah. yes, yes. Well, you, were, you were talking about though in that in your new book uh, the idea of our motivation for things. I think there is sometimes uh, those of us who tend to overthink everything. Uh, we yeah. sometimes our motivation doesn't make any difference. I mean, I think that's that's been a, a thread throughout a lot of the mystics and stuff. Is just I don't uh, I'm not enjoying this. I'm not getting anything out of this, but I'm going to do this because this is the next right thing to do for me right now. And that comes out of the twelve step too. That's out of the twelve step program too. What's the next right thing to do? Right, right, yeah. And let your uh, let your actions change your thinking rather than your thinking change your actions. You know, start with the start with the act. Um, yeah, but uh, but I like writing memoirs. I like I like autobiographical writing. It, it feels like it helps in my own journey, and then I like reading them. So you know, I read tons of memoirs. So uh, yeah, so hopefully this will be a good one. <laughs> well, sounds like your next. You get this book done. The next one could be on. Uh, you could. I mean, with your with your approach, your you could write a really good book on OCD. Oh, yeah, <laughs> you I really I, could. It's the thing that I still suffer, and it's such a silent thing. It's like, nobody would ever know, you know. <laughs> be a yeah. great book, though. I'd read it. 
Oh, well, uh, you can find Maggie's book at Amazon on Audible, which I really liked. The, I, I usually get both. I usually get a Kindle and an Audible and alternate between the gym and reading, you know. So, But your performance on the Audible book's really good. So I would suggest if they don't know which to go, I'd get the Audible book because oh. it's really enjoyable hearing you do it. Oh, thank you. So uh, they make great Mother's Day gifts, right? I mean, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> anytime. And um, we'll have to uh, get together again. I, like I told you when uh, Susan suggested that I, I talked to you, Susan Isaac suggested that you would be a great person to have on. I really am glad she set that up because it's been fun because I do think we are part of the same tribe. I and, do, too. And uh, I hope uh, when you get another project going, we can get you back on the podcast. And I appreciate your time, Maggie. Oh, thank you so much, Greg. Well, as I say every week, I want to thank everybody who has sent email and uh, some of you who know me have sent some text and things about the podcast with suggestions and criticisms and things you like, things you don't like. And one of my favorites is a, is a listener who's been with me since the very beginning who says that to I have a tendency to talk too much and I do feel like I talked a little too much talking to Maggie Rowe today. But I got excited. She had a lot of great things to say and really was engaged with the conversation and kind of lost track of how many words I was uh, throwing out. So the word count doesn't matter because it is a podcast. We can go as long as we want. Maggie is a special person. Her book, Sin Bravely, you can get it, like I said, at Amazon, any 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 bookstore. Uh, I suggest also looking at the Audible book because her performance on it's great. And it does sort of chronicle her time in a Christian mental facility when she was 19 years old dealing with an obsessive thought about hell and how she couldn't escape hell. But it, uh, it's been compared to a lot of things, but there's some really great character studies in there, and, and I think it's a book almost anybody would enjoy. And I also think almost anybody would enjoy uh, watching Flaked on Netflix, which is something Maggie's writing, and, and the second season is coming out soon. So uh, I'm going to close today with uh, that Flaked in mind with the theme from Flaked. We usually close out Thinking God podcast with Soul Shine from the Allman Brothers. But today it just feels right to close out with the theme from Flaked, which you can now watch season one on Netflix. It's nobody's fault